Good morning. The notes for this morning's message are found in the bulletin, or if you are joining us online, they are uh, below the link on our website. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We are moving along in the household code. Uh, If you remember, by way of context, coming out of the, the final walk, walking in wisdom, we had three contrasts. Not this way, but that this way. The final contrast was to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit, verse 18, is evidenced through our manner of speech and our joyfulness, our singing, and is evidenced in our submission to one another. Paul then uses that as the bridge to speak about three sets of specific relationships in the body. Uh, And then we call it the household code. And so for every one of these, I've titled it Spirit-Filled to draw the link back. These are the evidences of Spirit-filled believers in the various roles and relationships in the home, in life. The first pairing we saw, wives and husbands. Then we looked at children and parents. This morning, the ESV has bond servants and masters. Um, I, I think a more accurate translation is slave. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Slaves and masters. And this is a, a problematic topic for us. And so much so that before we dive into the text, I'm going to do an aside, trying to deal with the Bible and, and slavery. But first, I'd like to begin by reading the passage, and then we will have a word of prayer and we will begin. We're going to read actually the entire section, verses 5 through 9. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. Lord God, I pray that you would give us um, grace, that you would give us help as we think through this issue. I pray that you would guard my lips from speaking amiss, and that we would conform our thoughts not to the spirit of the age, not the wisdom of this world, but to your word. It's in Jesus' name I ask. Amen. You'll notice that we're not going to get through this section fully this morning. I've tried to give you the outline. Um, Paul's going to give a command to slaves, the command of obedience. Then he's going to give some instruction on how, not this way, but this way. And then he's going to give them a rationale. And then he's going to give instruction to masters. But before we dive into that, and I expect to only get through the first actual point, verse 5 this morning... I really think we need to take an aside um, and deal with what is often the elephant in the room. Um, let, me, let me see if I can illustrate why this is important. I think the topics of the Bible and slavery are often an Achilles heel for Christians and their public witness. Not because there's any actual weakness here, but we view it that way. And just who's had this experience? You're talking to someone, sharing your faith. And you're explaining what God calls on us to do. And, you're, and they challenge you with some issue, whether it's about marriage or transgender or whatever. And you tell them what the Bible says, and then they say, ah, but doesn't your same Bible condone slavery? And then we go, oh, 
where we say, well, that was for that time and that place. And then they say, well, perhaps this passage you just cited about homosexuality was for that time and that place too, huh? And so I think for many of us, we, we are hesitant or nervous in our witness lest this topic come up. And so for that reason, um, I think it's important to stop. How can we look at what Paul says to slaves and masters without first addressing the, the most obvious question for the wisdom of ours? Why doesn't Paul tell believing masters to set their slaves free? Why doesn't he do that? We'll look at that. That's what we've got to look at. Now, part of what makes this even more difficult of an issue is how much our country's history and our context defines, for many of us, the term slave. Slavery, however, has been a practice in various forms taking place as far as we can tell in all peoples and in all places until the recent history. So we've got to start that when Moses is writing what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. He's living in a world where slavery is already extant, widespread. The Israelites just were redeemed from slavery. Adding to the problem and confusion for us is that the the translators of most of our Bibles are regularly using different words to translate the two basic words, the Hebrew word aved, the Greek word doulos. In fact, I'm going to ask you to open to a part of your Bible, a book of your Bible, I don't think you've ever been asked to open to, please open to the preface of your Bible, if you have one. I, I, I commend to you reading the preface. The Bible translators, good Bible translators, will tell you how and why they translate. And it's good for us to know that. And I have an ESV here, um, if you can find it, under translation of special terms. And they specifically address how the ESV translators deal with these terms. So um, I'll read it to you if, you if you can't find it or if you don't want to, that's fine. But I do commend sitting down sometime reading the translator's preface to whatever translation you use. The New American Standard and the Holman Christian Standard are probably the most consistent in translating these terms. But here's what they say in the third paragraph under the heading, the translation of specialized terms. Third, a particularly difficulty is presented when words in biblical Hebrew and Greek refer to ancient practices and institutions that do not correspond directly to those in the modern world. Such is the case with the translation of Ebed, Hebrew, and Dulos, Greek, terms which are often rendered slave These terms, however, actually cover a range of relationships that requires a range of renderings, such as slave, bondservant, or servant, depending on the context. Further, the word slave currently carries associations with the often brutal and dehumanizing institution of slavery, particularly in 19th century America. For this reason, the ESV translation of the word eved and doulos has been undertaken with particular attention to their meaning in each specific context. It goes on. And so I'm going to be citing some passages, and you're going to see sometimes the passage we're reading, bond servant, slave, servant. In, in all the cases that I'm citing, and I'll let you know if there's an exception, it's those two words. Those two words. Um, I, I do think it, my preference would be for the translators to, to consistently translate them slave and then call on us to inform ourselves not simply to define the term through recent history but through world history. But be that as it may, that, that partly makes this more problematic for us is the inconsistency of translation. 
So what I want to do is this. I want to ask the question, try to answer the question, challenge us to come to grips with the question. What does the Bible say about slavery? I, I don't intend in any way to speak about the, the, the abhorrent practices of our country. Um, the Bible doesn't directly address that. What we do get is instruction in the Mosaic Law concerning slavery. So we're going to look at that under slavery under the Law of Moses. And then in the New Testament, we can draw some inferences and conclusions about the Roman Empire and its practice of slavery from what we read in the New Testament. And then we're going to try to come to grips. Okay, what does the Bible take? How does the Bible come at this? Is there something we should be embarrassed about here? Is there truly something we need to be ashamed of? Or rather, should we stop cringing and whinging at what God's word says, accept what his word says, and believe it. We, we are not free, as God's people, we are not free to come to moral conclusions apart from his word, and certainly not in contradiction to his word. So let's, let's move through this. Slavery under the law of Moses. Now, if you remember, the book of Exodus, the people are freed from slavery, and they come to a mountain when they meet with God. And they receive the law. And starting in Exodus chapter 20, we get the Ten Commandments. And in verse 2 of Exodus 20, the Lord reminds them of this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then in the very next chapter, we get instructions about slavery in Israel. And the, the translators are accurate. What the Lord governs, what the Lord deals with, is something very different from what you may be thinking of as slavery. In fact, your first blank here is this. Under the law of Moses, slavery was a temporary relationship with many protections given to slaves. So listen to this. Exodus chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. You see that? So in one sense, I was reading one writer who said what God um, institutes or what he governs is far more like an indentured servitude or an apprenticeship. Not only do you release them in the Sabbath year, you send them out well furnished. You send them out well supplied. So Exodus 20, um, verse 20, there's protections Whoever strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. It's life for life, lex talionis. The law treats those in that relationship of the same dignity. In Leviticus 25, we learn that in the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, all slaves go free, all the land rests. And so what we get in Israel is a situation where the Israelites could, and we read about this when we did our series on um, justice and race, dealing with the poor, that there could be situations where someone became impoverished and they would sell themselves, they would, they would voluntarily enter into service for someone. They would serve six years, you'd send them out well furnished. The law even anticipates many scenarios where someone would want to stay on Exodus 21.5, if the slave plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. The law anticipates there'll be scenarios where this will be the case. The, the Israelites are forbidden from ruling ruthlessly and harshly over their people. And so what God sets up is a scenario whereby those who are in severe need, 
those who are captive by, um, through military conquest, would serve for a period of time. You don't get their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids. There's, there's freeing, release, and in that release, they go out well-furnished. And so I don't think this is something we should be ashamed of. I don't think this is something we need to, to cringe and whinge at. Because whatever God's law is, and we're not under it, it's good. The law of the Lord is perfect. David extols God's word. We cannot be faithful Christians if we are whinging and avoiding passages of God's word when God's word, all of Scripture is profitable. All of Scripture is good and right. And we may need to challenge some of our precepts and perceptions. So slavery was a temporary relationship under Moses with many protections given to slaves. Next point, and this is crucial, man-stealing, kidnapping into slavery was a capital offense. What was not allowed is simply grabbing somebody like Joseph's brothers did and selling them. That is death penalty for all involved. Let me read this to you. In Exodus 21, again, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. What that means, then, is the only way you could legitimately fall into this situation is either voluntarily, due to your poverty, due to your need, or you are captured in battle. It's the only ways I can think of. Maybe there's, maybe there's a third. So man-stealing was a capital crime. So it's expressly forbidden, the sort of kidnapping and enslaving. Um, so, point three then, we have to conclude, slavery under the law of Moses was not sinful. In fact, I think we'd have to go further and say as Christians, whatever God's law lays out is good, it's right, it's righteous. But I'll just go with it wasn't sinful, but usually a result of brokenness. It's an evidence of brokenness. I don't think in the kingdom, in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be slaves or be buying slaves. It's an evidence of brokenness. Your poverty, your need, the war. In the same way, what I mean by brokenness, this sickness is an evidence of brokenness in this world. Orphans are evidence of brokenness in this world. Divorce is evidence of brokenness in this world. This is another evidence of brokenness. It probably wouldn't happen without something being broken, but it itself is not sinful under the law of Moses. Okay? That's, that's what I'm arguing. So you can read like one example in Joshua chapter 9. The Gibeonites lie and deceive the Israelites. They lie to them. Remember they show up with their moldy bread and their worn out shoes. And they trick them into making a peace treaty with them. And when the people find out, they say, okay, we can't kill you. Because we did make a covenant with you. But you will be our servants. And the, the Gibeonites are like, yeah, fair enough. And you can read. But again, brokenness being the reason. Um, in Deuteronomy 15, verses 12 through, i got a lot of text here, um, 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go from you. And when you let him go from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. So when the unbeliever says, yeah, yeah, well, the law of Moses had slavery. Yes, it did. Something very different probably than what you're thinking of. And, and so that is what the law governed. I mean, there's a lot more we can say, and I'm sure in the ABF we can talk about it, but I, I do need to 
move through here. Which means point four, a godly Israelite could own or be a slave. Godly, faithful Israelite could own or be a slave under the law of Moses. We have to conclude that. We cannot be more righteous than God, more compassionate than God, have higher standards than God. The law of Moses is good. We're not under it. It doesn't govern our political dealings, but it is good. It's wise. It's fitting. And so we see that something much more like a temporary indentured servitude, something that didn't have the harsh brutality that we associate with many protections, is temporary. Um, This is what the Lord instituted and set up for Israel. So, now we move from the law of Moses and its treatment, which is something we ought not to be ashamed of, on to the next step in the problem, which is Roman slavery. Because Roman slavery was not done according to the law of Moses, not even close. And, and the problem here, even though obviously the church and the Christians are not responsible for the slavery that took place in Rome, Rome is responsible. I think modern sensibilities insist... Why, why didn't, the question, the unasked question, why didn't Paul tell slaves, run away? Tell masters, let them go free. Why didn't he insist upon that as a matter of conduct? Why didn't he demand that? Wouldn't that have been the right thing to do? Isn't that the counsel you'd give? And so we've got to first look at Roman slavery, and and I'm arguing from Scripture. I think the Bible has everything we need to know to deal with this. I've read some external sources, but I think we can see here, first point, slavery in the Roman Empire, there was far less protection for slaves. Far less protection for slaves. Turn your Bible to, uh, to Luke 12. Again, I think slavery in the Roman Empire has got some significant differences from the slavery in our history, our country's history. But I think it is a lot closer to what was going on in our country than anything prescribed under the law of Moses. In Luke chapter 12, our Lord Jesus tells a parable. He's not condoning what takes place here, but the fact that what he describes does in fact take place gives us some idea of the spectrum of what could happen? And so we see there's far less protection for slaves. So Luke 12, 40, starting in verse 42. 41, starting 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? The parable was the master leaves and the, some servants watch and some are lax. The Lord said this, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household? So first observation, you could be a slave and there's, there's rankings you could be in a position of authority and power and have a master. Um, you, you could be a house ruler and be a slave. Um, when, who's the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion and their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, slave, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the servant, Dulos, says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces. 
Now, Jesus, again, is not saying that's a good or a bad thing to do. He's just saying that's what you'd expect to happen. And that only works if the audience would nod and go, yeah, yeah, I could see that happening. Which gives you some indication of the brutality that could take place in Roman slavery. Presumably, the master would be able to do this without any sort of legal injunction. This type of thing could happen. This type of vulnerability to Roman slaves. That's one indication. Turn, Turn back to Luke 7. Another example. Again, trying to show the breadth. Roman slavery is, is capable of some of the harshest brutality I think we're aware of. But it wasn't always what typified it. We also see tenderness as well in Luke chapter 7. The centurion, right? In Luke chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. Now a centurion had a servant, Dulos, slave, who was sick and at the point of death when he was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. But when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does this. So here's a man who has a slave. I mean, we get the notion of absolute authority clearly. He says, come and he comes, go and he goes, do this and he does this. And yet he cares for him. He's valued by him. He's not despised by him. So we we see some spectrum. In 1 Peter 2, Peter addressing slaves, again, with counsel, I think our modern sensibilities would challenge. First, turn to 1 Peter 2. I don't think, what I want to do is look the problem straight in the face. I don't think we do ourselves any favors by pretending these passages aren't here. Here's, here's Peter's instruction, 1 Peter 2. Now the head command is in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether the emperor is supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Then look at verse 18. We've got our first case study. Servants, doulos, slaves. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his footsteps. So Peter anticipates that a a wicked master may well beat a slave for no good reason. And he doesn't say, rise up, revolt, run away. He says, endure faithfully. Christ endured mistreatment. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When mindful of conscience, one bears up unjustly under sorrows. It, It disagrees with the wisdom of our age, with the don't tread on me. 
attitude that comes so naturally to us. What are we to make of this? So we've seen evidence that Roman slavery could have tenderness, could have exalted rank, could also have brutality, being cut in pieces, being beaten for no reason. We could, we could study more. One other point I want to make um, from this is that it was not racially based. This is another big distinction from the, the, the uh, slavery of our country's history. Um, all manner of peoples could be or could have been slaves. And what that means is there's no class, there's no group. There's no, oh, the Cretans, or oh, the Assyrians, or oh, the Medes. No, there's no group who just were understood to be the slaves. Rather, slavery in Rome, as far as we can tell, is a, is a group that people are entering and people are leaving. People are having high ranks and low ranks. We, we, in Acts chapter um, 8, I believe, um, I'm missing up my spot on my notes here. Yeah, 827, we meet the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And the Ethiopian eunuch is, we are told, a member of Candace's household. But he's a slave. Eunuchs are bought, taken on by people in power because you can trust them with your women. You can trust them with your household. And here's somebody who's got his own chariot. He's got a scroll of Isaiah. He's on leave to go visit Jerusalem because he's a proselyte. And yet everything I know would insist he is almost certainly a slave. He has properties owned. And yet he's got these types of liberties, these types of freedoms afforded to him. So it seems to be a broad category, capable of tremendous brutality and evil, capable of tenderness, capable of rank and exaltation. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Something that wasn't always permanent. You know, this is less clear. So we know the, the slavery of Israel was temporary. Six years and reset every 50 years. Um, and again, in contrast to, to the history of our country where it was forever. And your children and your children's children and their children. Paul anticipates the real possibility that slaves could earn by their freedom. And, and this is something that extra biblical information would, would in, back up. And reinforce. First Corinthians chapter 7. I got to turn there because I'm not there. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes this in verse 22. I'm not sorry, not verse 22. Verse. This is the problem I get with having multiple sheets. Verse um, 20 through 23. Each one of you should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now that only makes sense if this is something that happened with some level of regularity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called as a bondservant of Christ. For you were bought with a price to not become bondservants or slaves of men. So, then, that's what we can learn of Roman slavery. Um, one historian guesses that as many as one third of the inhabitants of the city of Rome and other major metropolis locations were slaves. But they also estimate that most slaves were able to buy or earn their freedom in their 30s. And we, we can't confirm this biblically, but that's to give some idea of the picture. So then, to draw some conclusions 
on Roman slavers who move towards trying to understand why the Apostle Paul gives the counsel he gives is this. Roman slavery was more corrupt, far more corrupt than um, what was instituted under the law. We get this from our Lord Jesus in Matthew 20, verse 25, when he said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They tend to be brutal. They tend to be harsh. It's not so so among you. It was far more corrupt. Yet, and this is the crucial point, and I'll take a moment to explain this, still not inherently sinful. Still not inherently sinful. How can I say that? Well, here's, here's the point I'm trying to make. There are some activities that are so sinful and broken that a Christian, a faithful servant of God, cannot engage in them without corrupting themselves. Paul insists upon this in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. You cannot participate in pagan worship, drink the cup of demons, and drink the cup of the Lord, right? You can't do it. I would submit to you that no Christian operating in faith could have any part in the, the production of pornography. They couldn't hold the microphone or run the camera. Something like that is so broken and corrupt, you, you take any part in it. You, you are proving. You're participating in it. And prostitution. There's another example where Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 6. You, no, you can't do that. And we, with our modern sensibilities, I think, would want to conclude the same is true of the Roman slave practice. And Paul simply doesn't say that. Which means when I'm saying it's not inherently sinful. There, there was a way, we'll see, there was a way for Christians to function within that system without totally abstaining from that system that was righteous and godly. We cannot faithfully deal with God's word and not draw that conclusion. So it was absolutely more corrupt, but not inherently sinful. How can I say that? If you're in Ephesians, just look at verse 9. Masters, people who owned slaves in the Roman Empire, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. He's able to instruct them, assuming they're listening to God's word, assuming they're obedient, they're part of the church. Remember, this letter is addressed to the church at Ephesus. The Ephesian church had church members who were slave masters and slaves and children, and they're, they're in the body. Or more notably, turn to Philemon. Now, let me make another thing clear. I think you've already seen in 1 Corinthians 7, freedom is the superior position. If you can be free, be free. Don't voluntarily become a slave to men. And I think the logic of the gospel and the logic of the Christian faith has certainly led to the reduction it was, it was William Wilberforce and other godly men like him that called upon the end of the horrendous North Atlantic slave trade that the British Empire brought to an end. But be that as it may, in Rome, in the first century, Paul can say this to Philemon. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. 
For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon is a godly man. Philemon is someone Paul loves. He's proud of. He's been blessed by. Philemon owned slaves in the Roman Empire. Those are all true statements. And so, your next blank, a godly Christian could own, in New Testament times, or be a slave. We we have to conclude that. There's no honest way of dealing with the text. I'll give you you one other passage. Um, Paul addresses this topic in numerous places. Listen to 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 5. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. The slave was told to regard his master as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So that the New Testament understanding of Roman slavery is not revolutionary. It's rather to reform the conduct. The slaves work well with a good attitude. The masters aren't threatening and being brutal. And so Paul and God's word is giving both slave and master a way to honor God in that situation. I am truly thankful that much of the world, formal open slavery has been done away. I think that is a great good. I want to be clear on that point. But we also need to be clear that there are faithful Christians in the first century who owned slaves. And if our modern ethic would condemn anyone everywhere and in all times and all places that is true of, we have a higher standard than God and his word does. I would not want any standard that condemns Philemon and condemns Paul for praising Philemon. And we need to inform our ethic from God's word. So rightly done, rightly governed, Christians could, in your last blank there, own or be a slave. Okay? We can, if you have questions, we can talk more about that in the ABF. I, I just don't think we can be honest with the text and conclude anything other than that. Um, and so it would be better to look it in the face, acknowledge it, say, okay. Because Paul is not about to tell, in Ephesians, we're about to hit the text now, he's not going to tell the slaves to, to run away, to rise up. He doesn't do it. Tells them to serve well. To obey. So what is move into this next part of the household code? What is what do we get from this? What can we learn from this? Well, given the, the nature of the relationship of a slave, and I think at this point it's it's helpful. I'll read a brief quote from John MacArthur's book, Slave. The hidden truth about your identity in Christ. MacArthur cites um, the New Testament dictionary of theology stating this. Um, The term is used either to describe the status of a slave or an attribute, an attitude, sorry, corresponding to that of a slave. The dictionary continues noting, the meaning is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous to give examples of the individual terms or to trace the history of the group. 
The emphasis here is always on serving as a slave. Hence, we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it, which has to be performed, whether it is liked or not, because he is subject as slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. The slave's dependence, the term stresses the slave's dependence on his Lord. Then MacArthur writes, While this is true that the duties of slaves and servants may overlap to some degree, there is a key distinction between the two. Servants are hired, slaves are owned. Servants have an element of freedom in choosing whom they work for and what they do. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. Slaves, on the other hand, have no freedom, autonomy, or rights. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were considered property to the point that in the eyes of the law, they were regarded as things rather than persons. To be someone's slave was to be his possession, bound to obey his will without hesitation or argument. And yet Paul tells slaves to obey, to serve well. So to whatever degree you or I I think we can make some comparisons now, are under the authority of some other person for whom we are to work. Some of you perhaps sign job contracts. I think arguments can be made that military service shares greater similarity. You know, the military can tell you, live here, move here, go here, do this. You cannot readily, quickly leave the service without some restitution, some penalty, um, those t- to whatever degree you are obligated to serve someone, to whatever degree you have committed to obey and serve someone that you're working for, I think these principles apply. You'll notice the household code does not contain instructions for simply workmen. And so I think there's also an implication that if this is true for slaves, how much truer is it for those who are paid for their work, for those who are recompensed for the things they do? And so I think we can draw instruction and implications as we work, as we serve our earthly masters, to whatever degree we're under someone's authority. I think these principles remain true. To whatever degree you have people under your authority, you're a manager at work, I think his instructions in verse 9 would apply to you as well. But we're going to deal with it in its first instance as the command is given to slaves. And we're going to get as far as we can get with the time we have. So now we're going to finally dive into our text, verse 5, the command of obedience. Just as children, the fundamental command is to obey. Bond servants, Paul writes, the ESV, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So I want to just notice three things with what time we have left. Three things. First, the honor, honor that Paul shows them. They may be slaves, but they are directly addressed from the scripture in the assembly. This assumes that in the local church, they're present in the assembly, as the children are as well. And they're honored. They're they're directly addressed. They're worthy of being called upon. Um, Whatever their social station and position might be. The Apostle Paul talks to them just as he talks to husbands and wives and children. Their, Their social status, here's your point, social position is irrelevant in Christ's church. It doesn't matter. Whether you're a CEO or you dig a ditch, it doesn't matter whether you're a child or an aged adult. 
Social position is irrelevant in Christ's church. This is the context in which Paul says things like he says in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. But you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that to say that those distinctions on earth aren't present. Of course they are. In Christ, before God, as relating to the gospel, there's no distinction. None. And so Paul has specific instructions for slaves, to be sure. But their standing in the church, their standing in the community of faith, their standing before God is not related whatsoever to their social standing. A similar statement is made in Colossians 3.11. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. First thing I want to see is the honor given to them. Also, I want you to notice that the household code is temporary. These are not enduring eternal responsibilities. Remember our Lord said in the the kingdom, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Remember the Sadducees came up to him, they tried to trap him, a woman was married to seven brothers, well, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? That relationship and its responsibilities do not continue on into the eschaton. The, 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 the obligation of children to obey their parents ends as they leave into marriage. And the slave-master relationship also is a temporary one. These, these relationships are temporal. They're for this time, for this epoch, for this world. And when we come and stand before God, when we gather as his people, those distinctions fade away. Okay? So the honor given them. Second, the obligation the obligation. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. They're to obey their masters. Now, the Greek literally is according to the flesh. According to the flesh. And again, the distinction is being made about earthly spheres. This is earthly masters, fleshly masters. This would include both the righteous and the unrighteous. This isn't a command simply if you have a good, believing master. This is just masters according to the flesh. If you have a master according to the flesh, you're to obey him. That's, that's the command. And then he gives qualifications with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now, that's interesting. Maybe you might be tempted to think we are moving back to the cringing, whinging notion of, of slavery. I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think you'll see it's the fear of the Lord. Remember in Philippians chapter 2, we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. This is serious. This is weighty. If you have an earthly master, if you're accountable to some earthly person, you're to do work for them. You are to regard your obedience to them as a heavy, weighty, serious matter. It's not light. It's not flippant. With fear and trembling and with a sincere heart. You're not just doing this to curry favor. You're not just doing this to get points. You're certainly not just doing this only when they're looking. He's going to go on to say that in the, in the next verse, but we won't we'll not get to this morning, about um, being a man pleaser or eye service. The temptation when you work for someone is to really just care when they're watching, it is to really just care about pleasing them, whatever it takes to please them, and then whatever I don't have to do to please them, I won't do. And rather, it's obedience, it's done soberly, it's done seriously, it's done with a sincere heart. You're not pretending. 
This means then that you've come to grips with and are at peace with your relationship to them. You're not internally broiling over and kicking and screaming. It's coming from your heart. It's coming with sincerity. We need to obey our earthly masters, our employers, to those people we're indebted to as well, fear and trembling, and from a sincere heart that is not angry and grumbling. That's the obligation. Very similar, in fact, to the obligation of children to parents. Same, same words given, obey. But I want you to notice, finally, before we close this morning, their identity. Paul's going to insinuate something here that we're going to see more next week. And one of the reasons why I've spent so much time arguing that the, the, the nature of slavery in the New Testament and the Old Testament is not inherently corrupt. Yes, it's done corruptly. Yes, it's done wickedly. But it's not fundamentally corrupt such that any, any involvement with it contaminates, condemns, and vilifies. The way Paul's going to resolve this tension, the motivation he's going to give the slave and the master is shocking. You're slaves of Christ. You have a master. And if we think any and all forms of slavery and masterhood anywhere and anytime and any place is wicked and evil, well, God has slaves. We're them. So we've got to have at least some room for a clean category of slavery. It isn't inherently corrupted, or that metaphor is going to corrupt. So. He makes the point to them that your obedience to them, to your earthly masters, is your obedience to him. As you would Christ. Very similar to the wife's instruction. Wife is to submit to the husband as the church does to Christ. This is how you can render this service even if your earthly master is completely undeserving of honor. You are another person's slave. You are another person's property. You've been bought with a price. And your heavenly master has every right to tell his children, his servants, whom he wants them to go serve on earth. That's the way this logic works. See, the next point. We are all slaves of Christ. We are all slaves of Christ. The reason MacArthur wrote this book was arguing that one of the primary categories for the Christian, one of the primary self-identifiers, has been swept aside. We're so embarrassed of it. We're so, we feel so awkward about it that we don't deal with it. And so consequently, our relationship is being absolutely under an alien will, of having no rights, no autonomy in our relationship to God, flies out the window too. It might explain why we so frequently feel free and frivolous in our obedience to our Lord. Do you understand that in most of Paul's letters, he addresses them, Paul, a slave of God in Christ. There are other identifying categories. We're children, but as Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, there's really not much difference between a child and a slave. You know, you know he says that, Galatians 4, 1 through 2, I mean the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave though he is an owner of everything. So we're sons and daughters, and we're slaves, and we're beloved, and we're his friends. 
and where's people, and where's bride. These are all those metaphors, all those statements say and communicate true things about our relationships to the Lord. And, and the New Testament is clear. We are slaves of God. Let me just read to you some passages. Luke 17. Perhaps you remember this from our study through Luke. In Luke 17, Jesus poses this question. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come to the coming from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. And I think that's a particularly difficult place to place the word servant because a servant would expect pay. The whole logic here is we've only done what was our duty. Romans 6 puts it in these categories. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God. That you who once were slaves of sin became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. For what fruit were you getting at that time from the things with which you are now ashamed? For the end of all things is death. For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. If you're a Christian, you're a slave of God. You've been freed from your former slavery to sin and death. And now you're under a new master and a new rule and a new will. 1 Corinthians 7, 22 to 23. We read it before, but we'll read it again. For he who is called in the Lord as a slave is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a slave of Christ. Now listen to this. You were bought with a price. Understand that metaphor is the slave market. Where you buy people in one place. And so this metaphor of our redemption is you were bought, you were redeemed, you were purchased out of the slave market of sin and death. You've been brought into God's household. And we've been given stewardship and management and honor, and yet we remain his slaves. That's much more similar to what we see in Rome, where you could have managers and people in positions of authority still having masters. That's pretty close in metaphor to our relationship to God. We're loved. The centurion loved his servant. And there's not much distinction between children and slaves while they're not yet grown. Yeah, you can see back in Ephesians 6. I'll spill a bit of my thunder from next week, but what's the logic he gives to the master? It's the same thing. Look at this. Masters, do the same thing. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Oh, the master has a master. What sort of people have masters? Slaves have masters. 
And so he's going to remind the slave, you're truly a slave of Christ. Work and serve as a slave of Christ. He's going to remind the masters, you may be a master, but you're still a slave of the living God. So, this is how we ought to conduct ourselves. I have more to say on this next week. Um, Let's sing our closing song, Carol. Let's sing our closing song. I invite you all to stand as we sing Christ, the sure and steady anchor. And I am quite confident our ABF will be lively. Thank you.